It's the 15th of September, 2010, in Beaumont, Texas. Greg Flanagan, a seasoned landman who deals in mineral rights for gas and oil companies, is in his room at the MCM Elegante Hotel. It's a fairly typical day and a fairly typical week. Greg's job means he travels a lot, and his evening routine in the hotel is the same as any other. Whenever he's in Beaumont, he always takes a room in the Elegante, which really isn't anything fancy, but more than enough to meet Greg's needs. He travels light, just the clothes he needs and, of course, his cigarettes. Tonight, he's lying on the bed, munching on some candy while he watches a movie. He tried to microwave some popcorn to snack on earlier, but that just resulted in him tripping a circuit and plunging his room and those around him into darkness. The maintenance man was at least able to change the blown circuit and get the power back on. So for now, Greg is watching Iron Man 2 with a candy bar instead. As the action heats up on screen, Greg lights another cigarette and sees that an email has arrived on his BlackBerry device. It's from his wife, Susie. She's been trying to sort out a tax extension and she's updating him on her progress. As Robert Downey Jr. battles the bad guys, Greg lays back on the pillows and takes another drag on his smoke. He emails her back saying, you're doing great, babe. It'll be the last message she ever receives from him. By morning, they'll find his body at the hotel, stone cold dead. Greg Flanagan's untimely death is one that'll confound the investigators. Who could have killed this quiet, hardworking landman? And how'd they do it? It's a baffling mystery, and no one, not even the investigators working on the case, could have foreseen what actually happened in room 348. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Beaumont, Texas, following the relentlessly unstoppable private investigator, Ken Brennan, as he joins forces with the veteran police detective, Scott Apple, to try to solve a locked room mystery that has everyone completely stumped. When Greg Flanagan, a quiet, hard-working landman, is found dead in his hotel room, the cause of death is a mystery. With no sign of struggle, no vices, no enemies, and no clues as to what or who killed him, the cops quickly run out of ideas. Fortunately, there are investigators like Ken Brennan just don't quit until they find the truth. From Noiser, this is the mystery of room 348. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. It's the morning of September 16th, 2010. Greg Flanagan's wife, Susie, has been on the phone to his colleagues over in Beaumont. She's worried about her husband because they always speak in the morning. And today, she can't get a hold of him. 
Realizing that he hasn't turned up for work either, Greg's colleagues head over to the MCM Elegante Hotel, where he's been staying for the past three days. It's not like Greg to miss work, and he certainly isn't the kind of guy to ignore his wife. So now his workmates are more than a little worried about him too. Enlisting the manager's help to open the door to room 348, they're shocked to find Greg's dead body on the floor. They immediately call the police. And just about an hour later, the veteran detective Scott Apple arrives at the Elegante. Apple's been around the block a few times in his career. He's fit, he's strong, with graying hair combed up in straight spikes. He was formerly the assault leader on the department SWAT team. He's everything you imagine when you think of a career detective. Assessing the scene in room 348, Detective Apple finds very little to pique his interest. At first glance, the room is just as it should be. Greg's small suitcase is open on the ground, with his clothes strewn all around it. On the bed, the remains of last night's snack lie half-eaten. The only thing out of place, in fact, is Greg Flinnegan himself lying face down on the rug, dead. There are no signs of struggle in the room, no blood and no obvious wounds on his body. His wallet is still in the back pocket of his jeans, and it's full of cash. So robbery wasn't the issue here. There's a small stain near the man's groin, which might be blood, but even that's not clear. As far as Detective Apple is concerned, this poor guy died of natural causes. There's really not much to investigate. Now, questioning the people staying in the adjoining rooms, Detective Apple learns that nothing particularly out of the ordinary happened that previous night. In fact, no one heard or saw anything of this quiet man in room 348. And Detective Apple confirms with him, too, that he believes Greg's death to be a natural cause thing. The police photographer records a series of images from the scene while Detective Apple goes through Greg's few belongings. There's no sign of any medication, so no evidence of heart issues, hypertension, anything like that. Neither are there any gambling slips, dodgy receipts, lipstick on collars. In fact, there's nothing unusual at all. So with the scene fully recorded, Greg's body is moved to the Jefferson County Medical Office for examination. Detective Apple's natural causes theory is blown as soon as he gets the results of the autopsy. Jefferson County Medical Officer Dr. Tommy Brown is a hugely respected pathologist. He's a thin, wiry man, bald on top with a brush of white hair below. He moves fast, he works fast, he talks fast, and he never wastes a minute. Today, he's about to begin a new autopsy examination, working through his tried and tested procedure of weighing, measuring, and recording, inch by inch, organ by organ. Now, from what Detective Apple said, this should be fairly routine. So, 
His initial examination of Greg Flanagan's body begins normal enough. He notes a small abrasion, about an inch long, on Greg's left cheek, where he hit the carpet as he collapsed. The only other wound anywhere on the 55-year-old's body is an even smaller nick on his scrotum. It's a strange place for the half-inch cut, but the surrounding area is swollen and some bruising is spread up into his hip. Dr. Brown suggests he may have been kicked or hit very hard in the genitals prior to his death. It isn't until he opens the body up that the real mystery shows itself. Boy, is it an intriguing one. There's a surprising amount of bleeding in the torso, and Greg's internal organs show signs of extreme trauma. He has two broken ribs, there are small cuts on his liver and stomach, and similar lacerations on his intestine. Uh, there's a little undigested food that's even been torn from his gut. On top of that, he has a hole in the right atrium of his heart. They're the kind of injuries you'd normally see on a crash victim, which is strange, given there are no outward appearances of trauma. Having concluded his examination, Dr. Tommy Brown can only conclude that Greg Flanagan was either beaten to death or crushed by a heavy object. He states that the extent of the internal damage is so severe that Greg would have likely bled out in under 30 seconds. So, well, at least his death was a quick one. In his report, under the question, Manner of Death, Doc Brown writes the single ominous word, homicide. So you can imagine Detective Scott Apple's surprise when he reads that conclusion. He'd been convinced that Greg Flanagan died of a heart attack. In fact, even Greg's wife, Susie, had told him that the news of his sudden death was something she'd been half expecting for a while. Now, while Greg did almost nothing to excess, she told Apple he smoked heavily, drank often, didn't exercise, and had never visited a doctor. She, like Apple, assumed that his lifestyle had finally caught up with him. Now, thanks to Doc Brown's revelation, Detective Apple realizes that this is not the case. Now he has a murder to investigate. He's got almost no clues to start with. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate the minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home.
The first question is, how did Greg end up face down on his hotel room floor with such severe internal injuries? Usually the evidence at a crime scene paints a clear enough picture of what's happened. But in this case, there are no such clues. Anyway, even if there had been a scuffle, how do you beat a man to death without leaving a mark on his body? And also, how could a fight bad enough to result in that kind of internal damage happen in a busy hotel without someone hearing it? With the question of how Greg was killed going unanswered, Detective Apple turns to the why. What motive could anyone have for killing this seemingly quiet, average, friendly, hardworking man? Susie Flanagan tells Apple that her husband was the nicest man alive. She adored him. He had no enemies she could think of. Greg's brother and colleagues, now they all agree that he was well-liked in the company. Even the manager at the hotel confirms he was a regular guest and he never caused any trouble. He tended to keep to himself, preferring to spend time in his room over the bar. Nobody at the hotel or at his work had ever seen him picking up women. Nor did he get into fights, nor did he gamble. And so, no matter who Detective Apple talks to, he gets the same picture. Greg was just not the kind of guy someone would want to murder. And yet, it's exactly what happened. And no one knows anything. Working through the maintenance records of the hotel throws up a possibility. Now, you see, Apple discovers that the maintenance guy at the Elegante has a previous conviction for sexual offense. Had he, perhaps, propositioned Greg when he went to fix the power after the circuit blew? If Greg rejected his advances, is that what prompted an attack? Well, I mean, it's a theory. So Apple spends the next few days interviewing the maintenance man and his co-workers and digging into his background. In the end, he has to concede there's nothing to link Greg's death to this guy. He has to let the theory go. So the coroner estimated the time of death to be between 8.30 p.m., when the maintenance guy claims to have left Greg alive and well, and 10 p.m. Someone in that hotel at that time must know what happened. So nine days after Greg's death, Detective Apple returns to the Elegante to interview the other long-term guests. There's a group of union electricians who are staying at the hotel while they're working a larger job in town. In fact, some of them were staying in the room right next door to Greg's. Surely one of them must have heard or seen someone in the corridor. The electricians staying in room 349 next to Greg's give their names as Lance Mueller and Tim Steinmetz. Mueller's sharp features clench into a frown when he mentions seeing the body being taken out. He asks what exactly happened to Greg. Apple gives them little detail. He died, probably beaten to death. He asks again if they heard any sounds from room 348. Mueller tells Apple that he and Steinmetz had been drinking in their room with another colleague, Asano. When the beers ran out, he and Steinmetz went downstairs to the bar. He'd been pretty drunk. 
but they both think they heard someone coughing in room 348 as they made their way back up from the bar later that night. That's all they remember. Feeling the line of questioning reaching another dead end, Detective Apple takes their license details, home addresses, and phone numbers, and that's that. His leads are exhausted. As the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months, Detective Apple explores every line of inquiry, however implausible. He even wonders whether Susie took out a hit on her husband or if his brother, Michael, who he was in business with, had done it for the insurance. Of course, there's no weight in either of these theories. But by this stage in the investigation, Apple has to consider every option. There's nothing as annoying as an unsolved mystery, and this is threatening to become just that. Even a $50,000 reward for information put up by Greg's family brings nothing new. And so, the investigation into Greg Flanagan's murder in room 348 grinds to an aching halt. The case files destined to gather dust on the shelves of the evidence room. Susie Flanagan's not about to give up. Someone out there killed the man she loves, and she wants to know who and why. So Susie takes matters into her own hands and contacts former Long Island cop and DEA agent turned private eye extraordinaire, Ken Brennan. Perhaps he'll take the case. At 60, Ken Brennan is well-built, fit, and handsome in a blue-eyed, rugged kind of way. He favors a muscle-hugging, short-sleeved shirt and wears his mostly white hair combed high, kind of like a low-key Elvis. This hog-riding, cigar-smoking, gravel-voiced investigator happens to be on the golf course in Florida when Susie calls. Now, Brennan gets offered far more cases than he could ever take, and he doesn't like to give anyone false hope. There's something about this mystery that appeals to him. He agrees to take it on. His first step is to meet with Susie herself over in Lafayette. And he pulls no punches in their first interview, asking all the hard questions. He grills her about her relationship with Greg, about his fidelity, even asks about the status of his life insurance. Though having reassured himself that she had no reason to want her husband dead, he moves on to a question that Susie has not been asked by anyone on the case before. Is there anything that strikes her as unusual about the crime scene? Well, <laughs> turns out it's a smart question because she admits there was one thing she found very odd. See, Greg liked to sleep cold, so he'd always have the AC on at night. But according to the crime report, the room was very warm when Greg's body was found, and the AC was off. It's a small fact, and it may be nothing, but Brennan files it away in his mental Rolodex anyway. Having exhausted the conversation with Susie for now, Brennan's next stop is Beaumont, Texas, and a meeting with Detective Scott Apple. When the two men meet in a bar, Brennan reassures Apple that he's a serious investigator. 
He has no intention of stepping on anyone's toes. This is always and will be Apple's investigation. If Brennan's going to take it on as a case, they'll work it together. He could see, even before they started talking, that Apple is tired. The case and all its dead ends have worn him down. Brennan's sure that a fresh set of eyes will make a difference. Every clue, every witness, every line of inquiry is new to him. And he's ready to start from scratch again. The two start talking, straight shooting men hitting it off right away. And the next morning, Detective Apple takes him over to the MCM Elegante, and they walk the room together. Apple's brought the crime scene photos and reports with him, and he shows Brennan everything they found, which really isn't a whole lot. While he's at it, he goes over everything that's happened in the case in the past seven months. Brennan listens closely, soaking it all in. As he studies the room, he examines every detail, checking the photographs and reports. At the end of it all, he turns to Apple he says, plain as day, I think I know how this guy died. I think I know when he died, and I think I know who killed him. And I think I know how we're going to catch him. I told you, this guy's good, didn't I? Anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves because Brennan's got a bit of explaining to do here. He tells Detective Apple that he'll reveal everything, but he needs to speak to Susie first. Calling her, he simply asks, was her husband right or left-handed? Right-handed, she replies. And did he smoke with his right hand too? Yes, she tells him. He did. She's sure. Hanging up the phone, Brennan turns to Apple and reveals his thinking. First, to establish when Greg died, the time of the murder, bearing in mind what Susie had said about Greg liking the room cold. Brennan's when theory goes like this. The log says that after the circuit breaker went out, the maintenance guy attended Greg's room and left him alive and well. With a fixed circuit at 8.30 p.m., Greg then resumed his movie. But obviously, didn't restart the AC. Now, considering how hot it gets in Beaumont in September, Brennan estimates it would have been about only maybe five minutes for Greg to realize that the AC was off, which means he must have died shortly after the maintenance guy left at 8.30 p.m. before the room heated up. Now, with the win established, Brennan now moves to where? Now, you may remember that Greg was found with a cigarette, half-smoked, still clenched in his left hand, cupped under his fallen body. As far as Brennan's concerned, that cigarette proves Greg died right there in room 348. Oh, sure, I mean, an attack out in the hallway might explain why there was no sign of a struggle in the room. What kind of attacker would beat a man to death and then take the time light a cigarette and pose it, half smoked, in his victim's hand. It is also possible, given how quickly he must have died, that Greg could have come back into the room in agony 
and lit the cigarette himself. As far as Brennan's concerned, the half-smoked cigarette confirms that Greg died where he fell, which means he was killed in room 348. All right, so Brennan knows when and where Greg died, and he may have exaggerated his hand slightly. He's still not sure who did it or how to catch him. He's got a damn good idea where to start. Brennan is sure. Those Union electricians gotta know something. No way Greg would have died in the room right next to him. And they heard nothing. The version of events that makes most sense to him is this. The electricians were drunk. When Greg blew the power, they confronted him in the doorway of his room maybe even argued a little. Then, they kicked him to death. But Apple assures him that they were all interviewed. There was nothing suspicious in the way they spoke or acted. He says all they admitted was that they were a bit drunk. He got no sense from their interviews that there had been any kind of interaction with Greg at all. Brennan has another thought. If they were drunk, and anything had happened between Greg and them that night... They'd surely have spoken about it in the bar. He suggests that Apple gets some officers to start interviewing anyone who works with those union electricians and anyone who may have spoken to them that night. Next on Brennan's list to talk to is Dr. Brown, the medical officer who conducted the autopsy. Brennan wants to know exactly how those injuries could have happened. When Doc Brown tells him that the injuries to Greg's scrotum could be consistent with a hard kick from, say, a steel-toe-capped boot, Brennan feels another piece of the jigsaw fall into place. You know, those union electricians would have worn construction boots, wouldn't they? With his preliminary investigation complete, Brennan returns home with the CCTV footage from the hotel. While he waits for Apple's team to finish questioning the electrician's co-workers, he begins trolling through the video. It's fairly boring and pretty inconclusive. It shows Greg on the night he died, but he had no interactions with anyone on the way into the hotel. It also shows some of the electricians going to and from their cars in the parking lot. Otherwise, there's really nothing of any note. Ken Brennan goes back to Beaumont in late May 2011. There's a few co-workers of those electricians still to interview. And so far, this line of questioning has yielded nothing. Of course, most of the men they speak to had heard about a guy dying in the hotel. But most of them know nothing more about it. Brennan still feels there's value in questioning them all. You know what? He's right. In one conversation, a foreman says he remembers some incident with a gun going off at the hotel. Detective Apple says, no, that's not the same case. There was no gun in the Greg Flanagan incident. Well, the foreman apologizes. He doesn't know anything about the Flanagan case then. But as they drive away, what he said sticks with Brennan. And it needles away at his brain. If someone mentions a gun, it's usually because there was a gun 
It's that simple. So Brennan tells Apple they need to go back to the hotel. Naturally, Apple feels that they've exhausted every lead the room has to offer. So they go back, but Brennan insists. And so they return to room 348. Slowly, meticulously, Brennan and Apple check every surface, searching for the clue Brennan is sure they've missed. They find nothing. Frustrated, he's about to give up when he spots a dent in the wall right beside the door, which leads to the next room. Looking closer, he can see it's been repaired. It's exactly at the height where the door handle might bang into the wall. So, I mean, it could be an old indentation from that. But Brennan thinks otherwise. He sees a clue. Now, he wants to check out the other side of that wall. Heading into room 349, he finally finds what he's been looking for. On the opposite wall, he finds another smaller hole, and that, too, has been filled in. It looks like a fairly rough job, in fact. It looks like someone tried to cover up a hole with whatever they had on hand. Brennan peers closer. Sure enough, the pale pink filler in this small hole is actually toothpaste. How had no one spotted this before? Brennan stands up, measures the height of the hole against his hip, and heads back into room 348 to find that the holes line up perfectly. And there you have it. That, that's a bullet hole, Brennan tells Apple. When the forensic scientists clear out the holes and shine a laser light through the wall, the beam lands right on the bed in room 348 right beside where Greg's half-eaten snacks had been left, and where they now realize he must have been lying when the bullet came through the wall. Finally, they have the how. Greg Flanagan was shot as he lay watching Iron Man 2. But if they want to bring Greg's killer to justice, they're going to need Dr. Tommy Brown's backing. Now, you'll remember that he's the pathologist who did the autopsy on Greg's body. Now, no judge is going to convict a man for shooting someone if the coroner's report says there's no gunshot, which means they're about to challenge the eminent Dr. Brown's carefully detailed results. When Brennan asks Brown if it's possible that the injuries Greg sustained could have been made by a bullet, he replies that they could. That's not what happened. There was no bullet. Hell, even a bullet wound. Now, Doc Brown, he's sticking to his guns. But Brennan is convinced he's right. And he wants to exhume the body to prove it. Well, <laughs> that's not going to happen either. Greg Flanagan was cremated. Not willing to give up, Brennan asks Dr. Brown, to walk them through the autopsy photographs. Reluctantly, the doc agrees. They examine every cut, every tear, every bruise, and Brennan sees clearly what he's looking for. A clear path through Greg's internal organs. A path which could very easily have been made by a bullet. 
Remember that small nick Doc Brown found on Greg's scrotum? Well, when Brennan looks at that cut, he thinks he sees what could be the entry wound. The skin there is soft, and it could easily have folded over the hole, hiding its true shape and keeping the blood and fluid inside. So now Brennan, clearly seeing the bullet's pathway from Greg's groin all the way through up into his body, asks Doc Brown to reconsider. But the doctor's sticking to his story. There was no bullet. He would have found it. And then Brennan turns to the photograph of the heart. Now, remember that hole in Greg's right atrium? That's a bullet hole, Doc, Brennan says. And finally, Dr. Tommy Brown relents. Since there was no entry wound, he hadn't been looking for a bullet. He'd assumed the hole, like Greg's other injuries, had been the result of a heavy beating. But looking at it now, the way Brennan's explaining it, he has to admit, a bullet is very likely. Which means that Brennan is right. Greg Flanagan was shot. With the when, where, and how solved, all that remains is for Brennan to prove who pulled the trigger. And he knows exactly where to start. More than seven months after the Union electricians left Beaumont, Brennan and Apple traveled to Wisconsin to interview Tim Steinmetz, one of the men in the room next door to Greg's. Steinman seems perplexed to see him after all this time, but he comes along to the station willingly to make another statement about the night Greg Flanagan died. Okay, so Brennan wants to prove his theory, but they need to play this interview cleverly if they're going to get to the truth. So they start slow. Easy questions first, things that have already been asked and answered. And they're careful not to mention the bullet holes. They want Steinmetz to reveal that part himself. But Steinmetz is sticking to the story he gave at the time. He heard nothing, saw nothing. They'd been drinking in their rooms, and then they'd gone down to the bar. No, he's not sure of the timings. No, there was no fight. Well, Apple diligently writes down everything Steinmetz says. And when it's all done, Brennan asks him to read over his statement and make sure everything's correct before he signs it. The two investigators exchange a knowing glance as their suspect does as he's told. Steinmetz asks for a handful of minor corrections, changes to his job title, that kind of thing. But otherwise, he confirms that everything is correct and he has nothing further to add. So he signs it. They get it notarized by another officer there and then. And now it's time for Brennan and Apple to play their hand. Instead of letting him walk, Apple tells him to sit back down. They inform Steinmetz that they're pretty sure he's just made a false statement. Brennan tells him they know exactly what happened that night in the hotel. Does he really want to go to jail just to protect Lance Mueller? They tell him to do the right thing, tell the truth. Well, <laughs> the bluff pays off. Tim Steinmetz starts talking all right, and soon they have the whole account, which are also able to corroborate later that day in a further interview with Trent Pisano, 
the third man in room 349 that night. Here's how it goes. It turns out they'd all been drinking beer. And when the beer ran out, Mueller asked Pisano to go get a bottle of whiskey from his car. As Pisano's heading out, Mueller also asked him to grab the pistol he kept in his trunk. Pisano did as he was asked. But when Mueller took the gun and started playing around with it, the other two men got scared. Apparently, he pointed it at Steinmetz, who ducked, swearing at him, stop. And then, when he was waving it in Pisano's direction, the damn thing went off. Well, at first, Pisano thought he'd been hit, but he turned to see the hole in the wall. He didn't know it at the time, but Mueller had just shot and killed Greg Flanagan in the next room over. I mean, wow, let's just take a moment to think about that. What are the odds? How wildly unlucky was Greg to have been lying in that exact spot on his bed, watching a movie where a bullet would pierce his scrotum and tear its way with the utmost devastation through his body. It's almost unbelievable. Now, any right-minded individual might go and check out that neighboring room to make sure their accidental gunshot hadn't caused any harm. Perhaps it was the booze. Perhaps the shock. But Mueller did no such thing. Instead, he panicked, bundled the gun up, and hurried it back to his car. By the time he got back, an angry Pisano had gone back to his own room. So Mueller and Steinmetz went to the bar. You know... This is the part of the account that really sickens Brennan. None of them checked on the guy next door. None of them even seemed to wonder if they should. They knew a bullet had gone through the wall, and yet they headed down to the bar and carried on drinking, as though nothing had happened. And not only that, even the next day, when they saw Greg's body being wheeled out in a bag, they said nothing. Even when the cops interviewed him twice, they kept quiet. And that, as far as Brennan is concerned, is what stopped it from being a dumb accident. And it turned it into murder. Sure, I mean, they hadn't set out to kill Greg that night. But deliberately lying and hiding the truth makes him guilty of sin in his book. Fortunately, when the case comes to trial, the judge agrees with Brennan's view. While the events of the night of September 15, 2010 could be described as a tragic accident, the actions of the men accused in the days, the weeks, and the months that followed showed a catalog of terrible, deceitful choices. The apology Mueller gives in court falls on deaf ears too little too late. He made the fateful criminal decision to play with a loaded weapon while intoxicated, it was his finger that had pulled the trigger. Hell, he'd even seen the bullet hole through to the next room. And then, knowing that the shot he fired must have played at least some part in Greg Flanagan's death, he was worried enough about the gun to hide it in his attorney's safe before leaving Texas. As far as the judge is concerned, Mueller is guilty of homicide. If he'd come forward when the shot was fired, it's unlikely he would have even been charged with manslaughter. But now, 
the judge gives him 10 years, half of the allowed sentence. Thanks to Ken Brennan's tenacity and stubbornness, Susie Flanagan finally gets to see her husband's killer brought to justice. In the courtroom, she has the chance to address him directly. She says, I would have spent the rest of my life tracking you down, and I found you, Greg's murderer. I brought you to justice. After the trial, Ken Brennan and Detective Scott Apple went for lunch. Brennan ordered a cocktail to celebrate. Apple, who was still on duty, did not. Ken Brennan still works as a private investigator out in Florida to this day. He's still solving the most challenging cases with remarkable success. In fact, a lot of people would say that the moment you hire Ken Brennan, the case is 90% solved. And I'd reckon they're about right. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. It's 1980 and we're in Akron, Ohio. The cops are called to the house of local business tycoon, Dean Milo. He's been shot twice in the head, execution style. But there isn't anything missing from the home. Robbery's clearly not the motive. So what is it? For weeks, the police work the case around the clock. They uncover bad blood in the family, unhappy business associates, and even rumored connections to the Cleveland mob. But they can't seem to catch a break. They need help. And that's where acclaimed private investigator Bill Deere comes in. He's a millionaire with a penchant for tailored three-piece suits, expensive diamond rings, and a lavish lifestyle. But don't let the glamour fool you. Bill Deere is one of the finest private investigators working in the United States. And that's a good thing because it's going to take all of his determination and tenacity to get to the bottom of this case. You see, as we quickly realize, half the county could be behind the smoking gun that killed Dean Milo. Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for part one of a deadly business. <laughs>